0: you are more than what you can remember, and people who have Alzheimer's lose a lot, but they don't lose everything all at once, so my hope is that people with Alzheimer's don't get written off and so alienated.
1: Welcome to Words to Mouth, an author interview talk show where readers meet authors beyond the printed page and win free books. I'm your host, Carrie, and I produce this show to introduce you to new and seasoned authors and the books they write. Check out my companion blog website at wordstomouth.com. That's words with an S-T-O mouth.com, where you can find more interesting interviews, reviews, and chances to win free books. Today we have with us Lisa Genova. She is the author of a wonderful novel called Still Alice, which is written from the perspective of a highly educated woman hit with the early onset Alzheimer's. Welcome, Lisa.
0: Thank you, Carrie.
1: I'm so glad to have you here with us. I absolutely loved Still Alice.
0: Oh, thank you so much.
1: So, And then this morning, just before I sat down to get ready to chat with you, I opened up uh, this magazine, The Week, and who do I see but you?
0: (laughs) I get the same magazine, and I thought it was going to be in there. Either, that, so that's yeah. gotta be a bit surreal, huh? Exactly. I it just, I laugh. I'm like, Oh my God, awesome. <laughs> there I am in the week. Yeah. It's pretty thrilling and surreal. Yeah. And I want to, I
1: want to talk about the whole uh, process of getting published and you know how people, a lot of people said no and how you forged forward. And I uh, usually, I don't read someone's bio, but I want to just take a minute and just kind of read the bio from your website. Um, okay. So just just bear with me for one second. Elisa Genova graduated valedictorian from Bates College with a degree in biopsychology and has a PhD in neuroscience from Harvard University. She's done research on the molecular etiology of depression, Parkinson's disease, drug addiction, and memory loss following stroke. She is a proud and active member of the Dementia Advocacy and Support Network International and Dementia USA and is an online columnist for the National Alzheimer's Association. She spends a considerable amount of time acting on Stage in Boston and in local independent films. She's currently working on her next novel, and we'll talk about that at the end. But, you know, it's interesting because sometimes when you hear about books like this, you think it's going to be maybe possibly a bit dry and academic with your background. And you are just such a gifted writer. I mean, such a gifted storyteller. I know that you had some personal experience with Alzheimer's and I was wondering if you could share the inspiration. And I'm not sure if you, if you dedicated your studies because of your personal experience or if that kind of came along the way and how you, um, how it led you to write this novel.
0: Well, first, thank you. Um, I was interested in the brain and how it works to affect our behavior and reveal our personalities and our likes and dislikes and our, our behavior in general. Um, my interest in the brain um, just was sort of an early fascination of mine. I, I read The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. I think my freshman year in college, and that really ignited my interest in neuroscience to begin with. And um, in graduate school at Harvard, I did not study Alzheimer's. I studied primarily the molecular-based drug addiction. And the people who were studying Alzheimer's, Rudy Tanzi and his colleagues, were right down the hall. And they're really the world's thought leaders in Alzheimer's research. So I was aware of what they were doing, but I wasn't doing Alzheimer's research myself. So when I finished my degree, I left academia and I left bench research, and I went to work for a strategy consulting firm that did strategy work for biotech and pharmaceutical and medical device companies. And while I was there, my grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Oh, okay. And she was she was 85 years old at the time. And I think because, you know, we were in denial. I'm sure she had Alzheimer's years before we showed up on the scene and really recognized it as such. But I think that we felt what a lot of families in our culture fall into with their aging parents or grandparents and that is that um, it's easier to look the other way my grandmother was living alone my grandfather had died a long time ago and she was a fiercely independent woman and she wasn't a complainer so I think that she was happy not to bring her symptoms to our attention as well until they got really to the point where no one could ignore them so by the time we showed up on the scene it wasn't long after that before she really didn't know who we were um, didn't remember her personal history very well, didn't know her house was hers and so it it was incredibly heartbreaking as her granddaughter to watch this disease just disassemble the woman that I loved as my nana mm-hmm. um, but as a scientist I found it fascinating and just I, I was reading in the scientific literature about Alzheimer's because I felt comfortable going there at first. And then I went to the nonfiction books available about Alzheimer's, so like The 36-Hour Day and books like that, to sort of find out about what was going on with her. And what, what happened was I got a really great understanding of the biology of the disease and what was known, and I got a great understanding of the caregiver's point of view, so how to take care of someone who has this. But I couldn't find uh, the perspective that would let me know, what does it feel like to have this? I couldn't get sort of inside her head. And she was so far along into the disease at that point that I couldn't have, she lacked the communication skills to have a conversation with me about, um, I couldn't say, Nana, what does it feel like when you're looking in the mirror, really recognize what you're seeing, like what's going on? Or when she's you know, having strange conversations, I I couldn't really then go back and and have a conversation with her, like, well, what was going on there, and what was confusing, and she was just too far along, Mm so that was really the seed for the book for me was, wow, you know, I'd really love to understand what it feels like to have this, and from the earliest stages, and then how does that change as the person walks through this disease, and so what is it like to live with Alzheimer's, I think the other thing was my preconception going into my experience with my grandmother was, you know, I thought of Alzheimer's and the image that popped into my head was an 85-year-old in the end stage of the disease who didn't know anyone anymore and was sort of in a nursing home and vacant-eyed. And um, one of the things I wanted to understand and what does Alzheimer's look like from the beginning, So diagnosis, between diagnosis and end stage, there is a life that is still lived and it has with Alzheimer's. So it's, it's a strange, it's a somewhat strange and at times heartbreaking life, but it's still a life that matters in lots of ways.
1: Still Alice reads like a memoir. How did you, you know, you talk about getting inside the head of, of people that suffer with this disease. How did you do the research for the book?
0: Well, my PhD helped a lot. It opened all the doors that I knocked on. So in the beginning, I spoke with neurologists. At um, in the Boston hospitals and I shadowed them and I sat in on neuropsych testing and I got to talk to genetic counselors and the head of caregiver support groups. But that still was sort of the outside looking in. Um, I was fortunate enough to find a group of people online. They have a group called the Dementia Advocacy and Support Network International. There's another group called Dementia USA, but I found them much later. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, uh, they formed um, while I was writing the book. And these are people who have Alzheimer's or a related dementia. And so these are people typically under 65 who are in the early stages of the disease. And they've formed this group to support one another. And they meet online. They're from all over the United States and the UK and Canada and Australia. And they meet online a couple of times a day in a live chat room. And there's also an online email message board. Um, where they can um, post questions and chat and um, just sort of lend support. And I let them know who I was and what I was trying to accomplish and asked if I could join their group. And, again, this is not a caregiver's group, so these are people only with dementia. And they let me in. It was pretty remarkable and amazing that they were trusting of my um, quest for knowledge. And um, I was in the chat room and emailing with them pretty much every day while I was writing the book. And they were my litmus test. I would ask them if what I was writing rang true and they would let me know.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. And, uh, you know, that's one thing that that I noticed with your book. I'm sure an underlying message is to treat the people that that suffer with this disease with respect because I think that sometimes we, with this disease and with others, tend to think that, oh, they don't know what's going on or people talk around them without really being respectful of who they are and, you know, the fact that they do understand some of this. So I, I just felt that that was really... Important in your book. Thank you. Can you uh, talk a little bit about the warning signs of the disease, and you know when should someone seek an evaluation for themselves or a loved one?
0: Right. Well, so you know, Alice starts forgetting things that are pretty typical. I mean, we have these you know things called tip of the tongues, where you are searching for a word, you're trying to remember someone's name, or you're in the middle of a sentence and you can't grab the next word. You're know, like, oh, what is it? What's his name? We all do that. In fact, the average 25-year-old has like three to four tips of the tongue a week. Um, But these increase as you get older, and they increase a lot if you have Alzheimer's. So in terms of uh, forgetting words, forgetting where you put things, um, maybe getting confused and disoriented as to where you are in a familiar place, these things start happening to Alice. And she at first thinks, well, you know, maybe I'm not getting enough sleep, or maybe I'm just multitasking too much. I mean, I I think all of us today in our culture, we're multitasking to the nth degree, um, which means that we're trying to remember a lot of things all at once and your brain gets overtaxed just normally. But when you have Alzheimer's and you're having a specific problem with uh, your working memory, um, your short-term memory, multitasking becomes extremely difficult. Um, she also thinks, well, maybe this is a symptom of menopause because having memory lapses and, um, some confusion and disorientation are symptoms of menopause. So she goes to all of these other sources first. And in fact, a lot of diagnosed Alzheimer's, uh, some period of depression, um, that, because cognitive, um, problems can be, a, a symptom of depression. So... It's it's hard to say. It's you do want to point to all of these treatable manageable problems, and eliminate the possibility that it's well maybe you're drinking too many glasses of wine at dinner and you should, you know, cut back on that or maybe you are depressed or maybe you're not getting enough sleep. But if the, your memory disturbances feel out of the ordinary, it's not just where are my glasses? It's not just what's in it gets in the way of your day. You're looking at the coffee maker and you can't remember how to work it. Um if things seem a little out of the ordinary for you and you can eliminate those other cause of depression and a cause or a lack of sleep, then um, you should go to your primary care physician and, and express your concerns. What I liked
1: about your book is that you, you know it, is, it gives you so much information in such an easily digestible way, basically walking you through the whole process and allowing, you know, allowing the reader to kind of know what to expect in that process. Um, you touched a little bit on alcohol. Is it common for people who have this disease to sort of self medicate and then is it difficult to i know you talked a little bit in the book about the um the character that was the was alice 's father
0: um well there's a couple of issues if you are a chronic drinker if you if you have if you're an alcoholic, you will probably show symptoms of dementia. Um, that may or may not be alzheimer 's and if you do have alzheimer 's on top of it, you you and the people around you may think it 's just you your drinking, so it might be very difficult to tease out what 's going on um, and then, if you have alzheimer 's and are going undiagnosed that 's a very frustrating and scary period of time. You might think you 're going crazy, um, you might be failing out of your job, you might be failing out of your relationships because you become untrustworthy because you can 't remember things you're um, you're not showing up for responsibilities, or your personality's changing a bit. So, if you're undiagnosed, you know some people do uh, start drinking to self-medicate, and that only exacerbates the problem.
1: Well, as a loved one of somebody that might be going through this, if you talked, to, you touched a little bit about personality changes, because of course, you know, people obviously, if somebody's forgetting major things, that's a warning sign. But touch on personality changes that might be, you know, a sign of Alzheimer's.
0: We have this part of our brain that's called the amygdala and it's this part of the brain that is responsible for our raw primal emotion and we learn when we're toddlers we express rage by yelling parents will will punish us for this in some way they'll socialize us they'll say no 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 use your words don't do that so you learn over time to not express your raw primal emotion we don't feel comfortable expressing pure lust or pure rage or pure um, bio that is brain or cortex sending inhibitory connections to this raw emotion center so basically you learn to inhibit your raw emotions. Now with Alzheimer's, one of the things that happens is that the these connections start to become blocked and then over time those blocked connections start to die off. And so what you end up with is a disinhibition of raw emotion or you no longer have this inhibition. So someone with Alzheimer's who could normally control their anger and not express it might just slip into a rage very easily or go to grief, or go to lust, or go to, go to joy. It, it's You know, it's different for different people. Um, and it, it can be bizarre because it's not who we understand the people to historically be. But it's just they don't have this cortical control over, you know, when you experience anger, you don't scream and yell in public, and that's your cortex telling you not to let loose with that.
1: Okay. Can you tell the listeners, that you touched on this in the book, can you tell the listeners about the prevalence of how this disease is passed down genetically and some of the advancements you see in the, the Alzheimer's research?
0: Sure. The majority of people who have Alzheimer's are over the age of 65. So right now there are 5 million people, a little over 5 million people in the United States who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And roughly 500,000 of them have Alzheimer's or related dementia are under the age of 65. So only about 10% have this early onset form that Alice has. And there's a higher chance that their disease has a strong genetic linkage. Um, And right now we know of, at least in the early onset forms, three mutations that will cause the disease 100% of the time. Now for late onset Alzheimer's, uh, most of the causes for that Um, We do know one gene mutation that can increase your chances of getting it, but it doesn't cause it 100% of the time. But with these early onset cases, like with Alice, there are three known mutations that we know of that can cause the disease, and these are presenilin 1, presenilin 2, and um, APP. And you can have genetic screening for these. If you have one of the mutations, if you're positive for say the pre one mutation, you have a 50% chance of handing down that mutation to each of your kids, and if they have the mutation, they too have a 100% chance of developing the disease.
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, the different questions that come up with people, I'm sure, commonly, and one of them, the, the question of having genetic counseling when you are the child of somebody that has the disease and deciding on whether you're going to check those genes and, and get involved in that whole process of, um, I guess, the daughter, was it Anna?
0: Right. Alice has three kids all in their 20s, and so they find out that their mom has the mutation for Alzheimer's, and they're all faced with this really tough decision. Like, do I find out if I'm going to get this or not? So Anna is the oldest and she's in her late 20s and she's trying to get pregnant. So for her, it's even a more sort of important question to ask because she's wondering, well, if I have this, then am I passing it on to my kids? Um, And she's actually undergoing in vitro fertilization. And so there's a way that you can avoid passing along that mutation if you are aware that you have it ahead of time so she has to wrestle with what to do and I think all three kids you know come at their decisions from very different places on whether or not they want to find out if they're going to get this.
1: Yeah the science is amazing I mean I I had no idea that that was even something that was available. Talk a little bit about the prevalence suiciding or that sounds to me like from reading the book that that's a common Um, thought process with people who get diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Is that true?
0: Yeah, and I really struggled with whether or not to include Alice considering suicide because I didn't want to alienate any readers. Um, I know that the idea of of ending your life when faced with a terminal illness is something people feel very strongly about. But ultimately, I decided to include it because what I found was everyone that I've come to know who's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's considers it. Mm -hmm. And They may decide that they would never do this, um, that they don't believe in suicide, or they may decide that they plan to, um, that before it reaches the end stage and, and you know they don't know anyone and become a, a very big financial and emotional um, burden for their family, they decide to do it, um, or that they're going to do it. Um, whether they're for or against it, everybody considers it, and these are people who are 45, 50 years old, and that's extraordinary. The, you know, the average 45 year old isn't out there planning to kill themselves or considering killing themselves someday. But uh, if you have, if you're diagnosed with Alzheimer's, you consider it. And so, uh, you know, this is where this disease forces you to go. Right.
1: Um, On that being, what was the most difficult scene for you to write?
0: Oh gosh, the most difficult scene. Um...
1: I can tell you the most difficult scene to read, (laughs) not to read, but it's one of the ones stuck out in my mind was when Alice was basically lost in her own home and um, had issues. You know, I think she had trouble finding the bathroom. It was just heartbreaking to see a woman that is that accomplished and, you know, that intelligent just completely lose, lose her place in time in her own house. I mean, that. Just it gave you such a glimpse into into the disease. It was really hard to read for me.
0: Yeah, that one wasn't hard to write. I yeah, I was I was right there with her on that scene. Um, gosh, you know, there were scenes that surprised me while I was writing them. That I they went in a direction that I wasn't necessarily planning to go. Hmm. And I remember um, the scene after Alice goes to, into a church to sort of ask God what it is she should be doing, right. and she ends up deciding to go home and, and ask John and, and talk to John about what it is they should be doing. Um, that scene with her and John when she's just begging him to look at her and that they need to talk about this, I hadn't planned on writing that. And while I was writing it, I was in a Starbucks and I, I was, started crying while I was writing it. And then I was in a public p- place crying while I am writing I probably looked pretty ridiculous. Oh. So I, 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 it was a... I just remember that moment being taking me totally by surprise. I, I didn't plan on that scene rolling out that way. Uh, well, um, what was your
1: what was your favorite scene in the book?
0: Um, my favorite scene is um, Lydia is one of the kids, and she is acting in a play. And um, the kids are all arguing over whether Alice should remember what time the play is. So Alice asks Lydia, "What time is your play tomorrow?" and uh, Tom says, well, you don't need to, her son Tom says, well, you don't need to know that because we're going to take you, and you don't have to worry about remembering something you don't need to remember, and uh, Lydia thinks that she should just, you know, give her the answer and let her do with it what she wants, and the oldest daughter, Anna, thinks that, that she should be trying to remember everything she can, and she be, should be rehearsing this and, and, and practicing remembering everything all the time, so they're arguing. About this, right in front of Alice, um, actually without including her in what she thinks. Um, so it's just, I just liked it because they all have such good intentions. That their reasons for their opinions are because they care about their mother. Um, but it, you know, like with all families who bring in their history and, and all of their flaws, it doesn't come out perfectly.
1: Yeah, you really, I, you really do capture. Um the essence of a family in this book and I especially like the relationship that you that you unfolded with Lydia because it's almost like you were, we were talking or I was saying before and in this scene she has such respect for her mother and Alice doesn't necessarily have the same for her in the beginning but it's neat to see how that relationship through the disease you know it evolves into something that's much richer, and, and you do show the, the difficulties between the, in the marital uh, relationship and how that has to shift, and it's just, like I said, it is kind of like a memoir. It's very, um, very good writing. I just really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, I wanted to show, you know, Alice was a professor and lived so much of her life in her head. Like, everything was intellectual. And she and her husband, her husband is also a professor, and he, they both sort of live that way, and we're very busy and sort of living in parallel, not, not really very intimate anymore. And when this disease hits, a couple of things happen. This is a crisis that is going to force the marriage to change, and he's asked to be there for Alice in ways that he's not used to, and he has to struggle with how to do that, and whether or not he can Alice can no longer live entirely in her head anymore because the, the disease is forcing her out of there. And we see her sort of live more from her home, and that's a place where she and Lydia can connect. So she and her daughter become closer as the um steals, Pieces of Alice as she had always been. The two of them weren't close when this started. They had lots of problems, and they they come together in a new way because of the disease. Right.
1: You know your your book talks a lot about, or the theme that I see is acceptance. You know, it's acceptance of the disease and any crisis that you have in your life. It's we all try to kind of resist that and accept the the reality of it and then you know, acceptance of one another. Um, I, I wanted to mention before or we get too far into it, Lisa has offered a free copy of Still Alice. To be entered, go to wordstomouth.com and leave a comment under this interview post or call 206-309-7318 and leave a voicemail comment that I can play on air. Um, if you have any personal experience with a loved one with this disease that you'd like to share, you're welcome to post it in the comments or I can play your, your message. Just be sure to subscribe to the E! News because that's how I inform uh, listeners of the winners Lisa when you were writing this book did you did you learn anything about yourself that might have been a surprise or something that you didn't expect
0: um well I I didn't I was about three-quarters of the way through the first draft when I realized in lots of ways I was writing about myself oh really it was yeah there's elements of me and my relationships with men and Alice's relationship John and there's a lot of me and Lydia. Um so it's certainly not my story. I mean I don't have Alzheimer's, but the relationship between daughter and mother and and um wife and husband, I I there's a lot of me in there and um I, I didn't plan not even consciously know I was doing that until I had already done it to a great extent. Yeah. So it was kind of Fascinating. We um, learned a bit about what I think of those relationships. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: I, I love that. That's interesting because you're not the first one to say that. And um, you know, some people I've had some authors say that there's absolutely nothing about me in this book. And I think, really,
0: <laughs> really, come on. Uh, you know, I've also trained as an actress, right. and you know, even you learn as an actor. You even if you're asked to play the the villain. I mean, there are. Pieces of you in every character that you play, there's no other way to do it. If you want to tell the truth in imaginary circumstances, it still has to come from a place of truth and it, you know any any book that you love, any movie that you love you're watching there has to be authenticity there otherwise it, it just doesn't ring true it doesn't work it doesn't move us right um, so I, I at least believe that it has to come from things that you
1: that you own. I, I'm just really impressed with you as a person. I mean, usually people tend to be, you know, either scientific and analytical on that side. And when I read your bio and I, and I saw that you also act and you're a gifted writer, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's that's pretty amazing that you've got all these sides to you. And I wondered if you see Still Alice as a possible movie for the big screen or possibly made for television. Have you thought about that at all?
0: Oh my God, of course. <laughs> While I was writing it, I had um, three of my aunts and uh, two girlfriends and my ex-husband actually were reading each chapter as I was writing it. And all along the way, we've all been saying, well, who do you think will play Alice someday? And who do you think will play John? It's been such a fun fantasy. And um, recently, just before Still Alice uh, was republished in January, I got a film agent. And so um, no word yet Uh on the film rights being sold, but... uh, yeah, we're hopeful, and we're still, you know, talking about who play Alice well, will be. Meryl, Meryl Streep. Oh, or my Jordan gosh. Foster you know what? Or, or Laura Linney or Deborah Winger. I, I was <laughs> just going to say Meryl
1: Streep. That's exactly who I think should play Alice. I think she'd be awesome. She's one of my favorites.
0: All right. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that would be a, more than That'd a That would be awesome. Um, yeah. Well,
1: tell us a little bit about, I love the story, the backstory about how you got published. and um, Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Okay well i I finished the book in about a year and a half and then started doing what you're supposed to do. You send it out to you send query letters out to literary agents and i I had the book, the Literary Marketplace that lists all the agents and what sorts of um manuscripts they're looking for and so I emailed or sent out letters to about a hundred literary agents, everyone who was in that book who would potentially be interested in my novel. And I either did not hear back from them or I got the standard dear author, no thank you, Mm -hmm. letter in the mail. And then there were four agents who asked to see the manuscript. Two of those four I have never heard from. Um, And the other two both read it and declined. Um, Both of them uh, expressed concerns that People wouldn't want to read a story about Alzheimer's. didn't think there was enough of an audience out there. And one of them said uh, that he didn't think it worked as a novel and that I should be writing nonfiction instead with my background. And so to the last one um, who said that I should be writing nonfiction, this was by email. I wrote back and said, uh, thanking him for his time, and just let him know that I'd had enough of this and I was going to self-publish the book instead, because it had been about a year mm-hmm. now. That I'd been looking, and he called me about five minutes later, saying, "Don't self-publish; you'll kill your writing career before it starts."
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And I was certainly, you know, I was certainly scared of self-publishing. It wasn't something that I was gung ho about trying. Um, My husband had been encouraging me to self-publish for a while, and I was resisting it because I, I thought, you know, if my book is good enough, then. The, some literary agent will recognize it as such, and it'll go through the normal traditional channels i, I didn't want to be kidding myself, and i didn't want to keep pursuing this if it was just a hobby um, but one of the things that gave me confidence i mean my family and my family and friends who'd read the book said they loved it, but they also loved me, so right. i wasn't hanging my entire my hat entirely on them. I had sent the manuscript to the marketing department at the National Alzheimer's Association and it had occurred to me that although this was fiction that I'd told a truthful and respectful depiction of what getting diagnosed and living with Alzheimer's is like and that maybe they would be willing to promote it or endorse it in some way and this woman at the National Alzheimer's Association got back to me and said she loved the book and that they would Be happy to help me um, promote it in some way and that, in fact, they were beginning a new campaign called Voice Open Move and they had a new website and wanted to know if I would write their blog. Um, So I said, yes, I will absolutely write your blog and I'm thrilled that you'll help me promote the book, but I didn't have a book published yet. (laughs) So... So I had a bit more confidence after that conversation in that if the National Alzheimer's Association saw value in this book, that I wasn't going to stick it in a drawer. I couldn't really. Pa- I just felt like I couldn't pass up the opportunity to be a part of um, increasing awareness at this point. So, um, so after about a year of trying to go the traditional route, I gave up and I self-published with iUniverse. Mm-hmm. It's a print-on-demand company, so you don't. Buy stockpiles of books. You um, people order books, and they the company prints them. So you don't um, have to. There's not a huge upfront investment. So that was July of 2007, and I actually, I was six months pregnant at the time. And I sold the books out of the trunk of my car. So I did purchase some at a discount myself, so that I could get them in local independent bookstores and sell them to random people on the street. <laughs> and um, it was listed online at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And after about seven months, it really started getting a decent sized buzz in the local area where I live in Massachusetts. And at that point, I had just heard about Brunonia Berry and the Lace Reader. And she had self published um, and gone on to get a major book deal. And one of the things she had done was she had hired a local book publicity firm called Kelly and Hall Book Publicity. So I decided to make a bit of an investment at this point and hire them for three months. And between what they were able to do and what I was able to do in terms of getting on radio and um, getting on our local Fox News, getting um, a a great review in the Boston Globe, enough buzz and enough readers were reading the book at this point that one reader who had been previously self-published, who went on to get a book deal. Her name is Julia Fox Garrison, and she wrote, Don't Leave Me This mm. Way. She got in touch with me, and I was asking her for advice on how do I go from being self-published to getting a book deal. She introduced me to her agent, and her agent became my agent. Um, meanwhile, I come from a very loud and large Italian family who was telling everyone shamelessly to buy their daughter's nieces, cousins, <laughs> books and my my mother's cousin's husband, and this is a side of the family that I actually didn't know until recently, um, he um, is the director of sales and marketing at at Simon & Schuster. I'm amazed that he read, that he took the time to read the book because here he gets the self-published novel of his wife's cousin's (laughs) daughter, and he read it, um, and he loved it and passed it along to... um, a man named Anthony Zaccardi, who is the Vice President Deputy Publisher at Pocket Books, which is an um, imprint of Simon mm-hmm. & Schuster. And there were three publishing houses bidding on it, and Simon and & Schuster won the bid. And uh, so it sold at end of May 2008. And uh it just was republished and debuted at number five on the New York Times bestseller list. Are you like just are you, are you just sitting back going, "Oh
1: my gosh!" It's, I mean, that's just an awesome story. I love it. Are you um? You know what I'm visualizing is that scene in Pretty Woman when Julia Roberts goes back and it's like big mistake, big. <laughs>
0: You are not the first person to say that exact thing. Yeah, it's, you know, the last agent who talked about that I would kill my writing career before it started if i self-published and who had obviously declined the opportunity to represent the book wrote me a beautiful, beautiful letter saying that you know, he'd obviously heard the news and was very happy for me and, and that that he's learned a lot along the <laughs> way.
1: So, <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's a nice, humble, you know, that's, you got to appreciate that. Yeah, you know. I'm you
0: know, very, you know, he, it wasn't any, his reasons were not malicious right. and not ill intended, but it was, you know, oops. Well, they're just, <laughs> yeah, it's surreal. I mean, this time last year, I was selling the self-published book out of the trunk of my car mm-hmm. and now it's, you know, available in every bookstore all over the country. I love
1: it. It's awesome.
0: Well, I know we've gone on for a little while. One of the
1: things that um, I mentioned from your bio is that you're writing another book. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
0: Sure. My next novel is called Left Neglected. There's a website for it. It's leftneglected.com. And this is a woman in her late 30s. Uh, She is like a lot of women I know today. She's uh, multitasking from the moment she wakes up to the moment her head hits the pillow at night. She is trying to be everything to everyone at home and at work and spread very thin she's got three young kids high-powered job husband um, two homes seems like she has the best of everything if you asked her like if you asked her at the beginning of the book how her life was she would say that she has it all but she's spread extremely thin so one day on the way to work she's late stuck in traffic Um, she tries to call into work to a meeting she's late for and takes her eyes off the road for a second too long and gets in a car accident and she suffers a traumatic brain injury and what happens what happens next is she discovers that she has a condition called left neglect it's also called unilateral neglect or hemispatial neglect and when someone has this they no longer recognize the left side of the world the whole concept of left is really gone so people who have this um, will only eat food on the right side of their plate. They'll only dress the right side of their body. Um, if you take their left arm and put it in their right visual field, they'll wonder where that came from and whose it is. They don't recognize the left side of them as belonging to them. Um, so it's this very bizarre condition, um, and she, you can recover from this. So through rehabilitation, she's going to have to learn to not only recover the idea of left and how to use it again, how to pay attention to it again, but how to sort of rediscover a new way to live and how to pay attention to what matters. Um, So it's a story about healing and becoming whole wow
1: it sounds amazing I can almost see that as a, as a movie in my head too okay. well before we go what would you say your biggest lesson or your biggest message is to our listeners
0: oh gosh well in terms of writing because I get a lot of people asking for advice on writing and publishing um, I would say if you believe in your story write it and get it out there share it with the world if you have to self publish it as a road to market I you know go for it Um, You you only live for so long, you you should go for it if it's your dream. Um, And in terms of Alzheimer's, my biggest message with the book I hope people walk away with is that you are more than what you can remember. And people who have Alzheimer's lose a lot, but they don't lose everything all at once. So my hope is that people with Alzheimer's don't get written off and so alienated.
1: That's wonderful. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, and I had forgotten earlier, what is the significance of The Butterfly?
0: Okay, so The Butterfly has an interesting origin. So when I was about five chapters into writing the book, my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, um, wanted to create a cover for the book. And I thought that was a ridiculous idea. I'm only five chapters into the first draft. How do I know what the cover is going to be? And uh, you know, we're not in charge of designing the cover anyway, because it'll be the publisher who does that. But he insisted saying that, well, it'll help you imagine it as a real book and maybe that'll help you finish. And so he came up with a few designs for a cover and he, for no reason at all, um, you know, picked a few different ideas and one was a butterfly, a, bl- a blue butterfly. And I really liked it and said, okay, let's go with the blue, blue butterfly. And so based on this cover that came from him, I incorporated um, the butterfly a bit into the book. So Alice's mother's necklace and the idea of sort of living for today and in the moment. This was the necklace that was very special to her mother that she only wore on special occasions. And, once, and Alice ne- you know, almost never wore this thing but loved it. And once she's diagnosed with Alzheimer's, she decides that she's going to wear this necklace that she loves all the time and not save it for later. Um, and then just the idea of what butterflies represent in terms of change and becoming something different and that you know most butterflies don't live for very long and um, the idea that just because a life isn't very long doesn't mean it isn't worth living I love it. Well, Lisa,
1: again, I appreciate you being with us. Your book, again, is Still Alice, written it with such truth and respect for those who struggle as patients and as caregivers. And I recommend it highly, and I'm sure, you know, chances are most of us are going to uh, be affected by this disease. So I think that it's a wonderful a wonderful resource. Before we go, I wanted to ask you to make sure, um, can you mention your website for this book and and how listeners can get in touch with you?
0: Sure. The website for the book is stillalice.com and uh, readers can get in touch with me through the website. There's an email address there.
1: Okay, and I'll put that... on my, on my website in the show notes along with a number of the different organizations that you that you mentioned. Again, I appreciate your time. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. Carrie, Thank so you. Listeners, uh, the book again is still Alice. Please enter to win a free copy by leaving a comment on wordstomouth.com or calling 206-309-7318 and share something that I can play on air. If you like this show, please leave a review on iTunes for Words to Mouth and make sure that you subscribe to the show so that you get it delivered to your computer for free. As always, thank you to Natalie Brown for her song, You Gotta Believe, from the Podsafe Music Network. And thanks for listening and take good care until next time.